Good morning, City Light. My name is Joe. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, And I just want to say happy Mother's Day. Um, I hope for all the mothers in the room that today is a day that you feel loved, you feel appreciated, um, and just reflect on on the difference that you've made in the lives of your own kids and and, and kids that you've been surrogate mothers for. So uh, today is actually a little bit of uh, double pressure for me. Um, I, I've got three kids, uh, so uh, not only is today Mother's Day, but it's also my wedding anniversary. So thank you. So 12 years ago today, my wife Whitney and I got married. Um, so say a little prayer for me uh, as I try to show just a little sliver of the love and appreciation uh, that I have for my wife, the mother of my children, um, as well as my own mom and, and mother-in-law, uh, so just some wonderful moms in my life. Um, and so, uh, so as, as we get started today, uh, we've been now in the book of Philippians. This is the fifth week. And so Paul Schleicher uh, preached last week, and, and he, he, he pointed out that there seems to be a key verse in the book of Philippians. And, and this, this key verse seems to be chapter 1, verse 27. Um, all, the, all the verses before that seem to kind of point to this. Uh, all the verses after it kind of point back to how. And that verse is, only... Let the manner of your life be worthy of the gospel. Um, And so all all the rest of the passages that we read kind of point back to this and how to let our our manner of life be worthy of gospel. But as I've thought about that, it's brought up a question um, in my mind. And this question is a question that I've wrestled with um, quite a bit since I've become a Christian. Because I know that there is no way I can live a, live a life that's worthy of the gospel. That's kind of the point of the gospel, right? We can't actually stack up. We can't actually uh, live a life worthy of salvation, worthy of the gospel. And, and so, so if my question is, if we are saved by grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone, what is our, what's our role? What's our responsibility? What do we do? I don't think we can sleepwalk, right, through this life as a Christian, but I also know I can't do any earning, right? There's got to be some form of middle ground here. And I think uh, for me, as a Christian, I've, I've swung on both ends of this pendulum. Uh, after I became a Christian when I was 19, um, uh, practically I lived as if God had saved me and then everything else was up to me. So he had done the saving, now I'm the one that has to do the living, try to not sin anymore, try to live for him, and it took me about five minutes and 35 seconds to figure out I couldn't do that. It it, it doesn't take long to realize, you know what, you've got no chance. You're not going to live a holy life. And so uh, after, after kind of working through that, realizing that salvation is in fact a gift, that, that Christ actually has to be the one working in me, otherwise I'm toast, um, I, I, I kind of swung all the way to the other side of the pendulum, uh, where I was just like, you know what? If Jesus wants to do something in me, he can do it. I'm here, you know? I, I'm not going to put forth any effort. And I kind of became a lazy Christian, if you will. And so um, I don't think that's, that's the right thing either. And so I think there's got to be a middle ground, right? And so this question has been a question that I've been wrestling with. And I think Paul answers our question today in, in the passage that Austin just read. Um, I, I think uh, uh, Paul is, is showing us and pointing us to the fact that, yes, God does do a work in us, but we have got a responsibility, a job, a, 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 a just the 
we can work alongside him. And so, uh, so the, the title of today's sermon is God's Work in Us. And we're going to look at the balance here uh, where, um, between what Christ is, does inside of us and our response to that. And we're going to see that when we do respond to what Christ is doing in us, that we're actually going to stand out. If we do respond to, to Christ, we're going to stand out from the world around us. We're going to stand out from society. And Paul calls us lights in the world, lights in the darkness, and that we will be Christ's witness, specifically being lights in a dark world. So let's go ahead and get going. Look with me at uh, Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 13. Therefore, all right, that seems like a good place to stop and take a breather. Whenever you see that word, therefore, it is a good uh, clue that you should look to what happened right before that. Because if he's saying, therefore, what happened right before that is going to give you context for what comes after it. So if you've taken a Sunday school class, you've probably heard this saying, if you see a therefore, look and see what it is. Therefore, bingo, good work. Um, and so, so we see right before this, Paul is talking about Jesus. Um, he's talking about how he is God, he is king. However, he did not assume uh, equality with God, something to be grasped. So he humbled himself even to death on a cross. Um, and then after dying on a cross, rising from the dead, he was then exalted, exalted above every name, above every creature, above everything, so that every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. And so we get a picture leading into what we're reading today of Christ this, in his humble majesty. He is king. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. But he is also a humble king. So let's go ahead and move on. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And now when you read that verse, and specifically uh, when you read the verse, work out your own salvation, it probably brings a lot of questions to mind. I know it has for me historically. And so the, the, what it sounds like at first glance is that Paul is telling us, hey, you can actually earn your salvation. You can actually work and get it. You can work and, and work your way to Christ, which seems like a contradiction because we know from the rest of Paul's writings that we are saved by grace alone, by faith alone, not by works, lest no man should boast. So, so is Paul contradicting himself here, or is he telling us that we can, in fact, actually work for our salvation? I would say neither of those. He's not saying we can work for our salvation, and he's not contradicting himself. And the reason for it is this. Notice the wording there. Paul says to work out our salvation, not work for our salvation. He's not telling us that we have something that we can work for, that we can work up to. He's telling us that we have something. If Jesus is in us, we have something that we get to work out with him. And then right after it says, for God is the one that works in you to will and to work. So, so he's saying again that God is the one that worked this salvation in you in the first place. So it is not something we can achieve. It's not something that we can get on our own, but it is something that we get to work through, work in with Jesus himself. He is saying, in light of who Christ is, who is living and working in you, 
you too work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He's calling us to action. He's calling each of us to work. Not to earn our salvation, but to start experiencing it now. Think of it this way. Have you ever received a gift that you needed to work to either learn how to use or work to learn how to maintain or something like that? April 9th, 1998, my 16th birthday, I was given one of these gifts. I came home from school. In the garage was a powder blue 1987 Chrysler LeBaron. It only had four cylinders, but it had a turbo. So we had it going on. Um, and this, this, this car was clean. It was pretty. There were hardly any scratches on it. And the best part about it was I didn't pay a penny for this thing. In fact, uh, my mom and dad had paid the first six months of, of its insurance. It didn't even came with a tank full of gas. So this was a gift um, in every sense of the word. And so there I was at 16. I was now the owner of a car. But at 16, I had some work to do before I could properly operate that car, right? Unfortunately for me, and even more unfortunately for that car, I did not take that job very seriously. I, uh, I, I, I never changed the oil, never, ever. Um, I, I, I never checked the air in the tires to make sure that they, were, that they were even, that they were where they were supposed to be. I didn't pay attention to any, to any knocks or, or sounds or anything like that. One day it started to get hot all on its own. I just kind of ignored it. Uh, just, you know, turn it off. It cools down. That works, right? <laughs> the sad part about this my dad is a skilled mechanic. He's the one that gave me the car. But I didn't go to him. I was too prideful. I was like, no, I don't need to. I could have gone to him for the information, for the help, whatever I needed to. But I didn't. I was too prideful. Um, and, and so uh, also at 16, um, I, you could have described me as a somewhat reckless driver. Just a little bit. Um, after about three months... Um, I, I, I lost control of it and hit a pole. Um, one day I was going over the, well, okay, slightly over the speed limit, just a little bit, on the interstate, and I blew my tire because I hadn't paid attention to where the, where the tire pressure was. After three months, this car looked nothing like the gift I got for my 16th birthday, nothing. After a year, I was, I was driving this, this vehicle with expired license plates, Pretty sure no more insurance on it. Don't call the police. It was a long time ago. Um, I, I, it had a little, one of those little donuts on the car, like the, uh, the spare tire. Still had one of those on there for eight months. A busted up driver's side um, and no rear view mirror. I don't know how that happened, but I had no rear view mirror. So this is the car I'm driving because I haven't taken the care to work on it, work through it, work for it. It finally met its end, mercifully, um, in the drive through window of a Burger King. <laughs> I, uh, I let it overheat, and uh, it, it, is, it just quit. And it, it is a low point in your life when you and your friends are pushing your beat-up 1987 powder blue Chrysler LeBaron, four cylinders, had a turbo, out of the Burger King drive through window with smoke <laughs> billowing from under the hood. It was a sad day. You see, I was, I had a gift. I had something. 
Um, but I still, I, I was given a gift, but I still had to grow and to learn and to figure out how to live in that gift, how to figure out that gift. City Light, salvation is a gift. God, but God works through us and in us in that gift, and we get to work alongside him in that gift. And the main way in which he works through us and in us is by separating us from our sin. Not only does God save us from the punishment that we deserve for our sin, he also saves us from the controlling power, from its controlling power in our lives. Jesus not only saves us from sin's guilt, but from sin's grip. This is a very important part, point as we live lives changed by Jesus, as we live lives that are molded and centered around the gospel. In fact, this is the main point that Paul is pushing towards here in this first part of the passage, is that your, your God lives in you and works in you to separate you from the sin that has been in you. We are constantly being loosed from the grip of sin. And there's also really, really good news in this passage. In verse 13, it says that it is God who works in us, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So God doesn't leave us alone. He works in us. Not only does he work in us, he he works in our will and our work. What that means is he works in our will, which is our desires. And then he works in our work, which is our actions or our behaviors. So, So God changes our hearts. He changes our desires. He changes us from the inside out. He is actually moving us from lives of sin to holiness. And the process by which we are loosed from this sin is so simple, yet so difficult. Look back with me again at verse 12. Paul says, as you have always obeyed, we obey. Christ works in us, and we obey him, rejoicing that he is working in us. We don't work and effort and, uh, merely alongside of Christ, but it is Christ himself who is work, working and efforting and laboring within us. In fact, we see this also hinted at in, in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, when Paul says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will complete it and bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. And so God starts a work in us, and in the process will bring it to completion, is faithful to bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. So we know that this is a process as well. We're going to have ups and downs in working in Christ. We're going to have ups and downs in our obedience to Christ. The, The process of being removed from sin is not an easy one. We like our sin. We really do. It's comfortable. We like our flesh. It's so much easier to take the path of least resistance, to succumb to our own selfish desires. But we fight. We fight our sin by our obedience to Jesus. As we obey Jesus, he changes our will, our desires, and then he changes our work and what we do. He makes us desire holiness instead of sin. He literally makes us start to desire something else. Now, this doesn't mean, and don't, don't hear me wrong, this doesn't mean that, that you only desire holiness. There is still a war going on inside of us. Our, our flesh is still trying to take us away. It's still trying to get us to sin. However, with our new heart, now we are, all of a sudden we have a heart of flesh, 
that is actually sensitive to what God is doing and what God is saying. And so we start to pursue these things that in the past we never would have. How many uh, people in here uh, made fun of what Christians did before they actually became a Christian? Right? Yeah, I need to see more hands. I know there's way more than that. I know I did. I loved it. That was one of my favorite things to do. If I, if I saw Christians praying, I would make fun of them with my friends. Um, if I got invited to a Bible study, I would just talk bad about that person after they left. Um, if I saw someone carrying their Bible across campus, I would laugh at them, make fun of them. But this is the inter- interesting thing and, and probably shows that God has a good sense of humor. Um, after I became a Christian, guess what I was doing? I was going on prayer walks. I was praying out loud at dinner. I was carrying my Bible across campus to the Bible study, right? God had given me a new heart with new desires. Again, there was still things warring against it, but he had given me a new heart that was sensitive to him, that was sensitive to what he was doing and desired him above all else. And City Light, can I say that I've seen this movement of Christ in you? There are so many people in this church that are fighting sin, that, are, that have been changed by in the, from the inside out by Christ, working with him, responding to him, and fighting that sin. Just some examples of what I've seen and and been privileged to see in you all as I've met with you and and talked. Men, young and old, fighting against lust and pornography. Couples uh, engaged in dating before marriage, committing themselves to celibacy before their wedding day. Um, uh, Husbands and wives laying themselves down sacrificially for the good of each other, looking out for the other's best interest first. Men and women struggling through depression and anxiety, but deciding even through that to focus on the hope, to focus on the promises, and to focus on the life that Jesus gives them. See, like there are so many of you in this room that are obeying Jesus and slaying sin. You are working out your salvation by obedience to Jesus in your lives, which is awesome, as this is what Paul is telling us to do here. Perfection is not what you're striving for because you know that you're never, never going to be perfect, but it's Christ that you're striving for, obeying him and slaying sin. And finally, in, 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 this, in this passage, let's look back at verse 12 and look at the term that Paul uses here, fear and trembling. Now, this is not an anxiety-filled fear of punishment, but an awe-filled reverence for God. Uh, Paul is actually referencing Psalm 2, uh, 11 here uh, that says to obey the, or serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. And this, this psalm is actually talking about Christ. It's talking about the Son of God. And so it's talking about us taking refuge in him, obeying him, and then rejoicing in trembling. And so this fear and trembling that Paul is talking about uh, has to do with a couple of things. Number one, it has to do with the position of Christ, God. He is God. We, we found out from the passage before, remember the therefore, that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is Lord. And so just his position should bring an awestruck fear and trembling of him. Secondarily, this should be a fear and trembling based on who we are and what we are. The fact that we cannot achieve our salvation, there is no way that we can get to God, should cause in us a healthy fear and trembling. Your inability to achieve salvation on your own should strike that fear into you and drive you to Jesus. 
if your plan for salvation is that you are basically a good person, then you have reason to be afraid. You really do. You might stack up well to that person sitting next to you, but I can tell you that you do not stack up well to the one person that you're actually going to be compared to on that day, and that is Jesus. So we should allow this fear and this anxiety, this, not anxiety, this fear uh, to, and trembling to, to have us examine ourselves. Like I mentioned before, Jesus saves you not only from sin's uh, guilt, but from sin's grip. And so if you're not experiencing any victory of, over sin, if your life has seen absolutely no change from death to life, let this fear and trembling lead you to examine yourself and your heart. If you are not seeing the fruit of obedience to Jesus in your life in some way, it's, it's time to start asking some very tough but very necessary questions. If we are a tree and our tree is not bearing fruit to obedience to Jesus, we probably need to look and see what we're rooted in. If there is no Jesus fruit on our tree, there is a good chance that we are not rooted in Jesus at all. And if we are not rooted in Jesus at all, then we should have anxiety and fear of punishment. Obedience to Jesus will not bring salvation in itself, but is a fruit of having salvation in Jesus. Let me say that a different way. Obedience is not the cause of salvation, but obedience is the fruit of salvation. Now, perfection and immediate wholesale change is not, is not exactly what I'm talking about. Some of you may have, may have experienced tangible change immediately with Jesus, which is awesome. But for others of you, this has been a slower process. This has been a slower process of heart that has been slowly moving away from sin and towards Jesus. If either of those are you, rejoice, because Jesus is working in you, even if it's not as fast as you would like. When I first came to Christ, I experienced many of those big right-away changes. Um, I, I, I just very simply didn't live for the things that I had lived for before. There was a certain set of sin that I was engaging in that I no longer engaged in. And, and to be honest, uh, it was fairly easy because of what Christ had done to me, done in me and, and had, had kind of captured me. But as I went along, the changes seemed to kind of slow down. I was still selfish, insecure, people-pleasing, and I stand up before you today still struggling with those same sins. It, 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 it was frustrating because it seemed like the steps I was taking in those days were super tiny compared to the ones that I had taken right away with Christ. But as I look back, as I look back on that and see what he is doing in my life now, I see that he never actually stopped moving in me. The steps may not have been what I wanted them to be, but they were what he was working in me and will continue to work in me until that day. So I don't want to create any unneeded anxiety in you if you've been struggling with like a certain sin uh, for years and years, or if you've only been seeing small victories. In fact, I would say if that is you, this passage actually has a lot of hope for you. It has a lot of hope. And the reason for that is is because it clearly points out that you are not the one doing it by yourself. It's Christ working in you. Since he has the power, he promises that he is going to complete that work in the, until the day of Christ Jesus. And so if you are seeing fruit, rejoice, even if that fruit is smaller than you would like. But if you're not, you've never seen that fruit. Today, would you check your roots? Would you check and see what you're rooted in?
All right, let's keep moving. Look with me at verses 14 to 16. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Point one, God works in your will and in your work. Point two, God works in your witness. So Paul starts that out with do all things without grumbling or disputing. Another word for that would be arguing. Okay, so raise your hand if you walk through this life and you've never grumbled, you've never complained, you've never argued. Right, exactly. Uh, grumbling and arguing, arguing seem to come pretty naturally to us in our fallen state, right? In fact, it seems to be a preferred mode of communication in our crooked and twisted generation today, is it not? Do this. This week, go to work or go to a coffee shop or, or, or wherever, and I want you to sit down for an extended period of time and just listen to the conversations around you. And as you listen to those conversations, see if you can count the amount of times that someone complains, someone grumbles, Someone argues, and see if you can keep up. You probably want to bring a calculator or an abacus or something with you because you're going to be doing some math. Or scroll down your Facebook feed. You learn new and interesting ways to complain and argue about things every single day there, right? Yeah. You'll find out what's wrong with every political party, what's wrong with every presidential candidate, right? You'll find people complaining about their server at the restaurant was, was poor. You'll find servers at the restaurant complaining that that person's tip was terrible, right? You'll find, you'll find parents complaining about kids, kids complaining about parents. You'll find people lamenting, why can we never move forward as a society? Other people lamenting, why can't things be the way they used to be, right? Everyone complains about the weather. The weather sucks. It's too hot. It's too cold. It's snowing. It's raining. It's cloudy. It hasn't rained enough. It's exhausting, right? There was a college, uh, two actually, where the students got very upset about a certain somewhat polarizing presidential candidate's name being written in chalk on the sidewalk. Now, these students got very upset. They took their, uh, they took their case all the way to the university president, um, arguing, and in their argument, they said they felt discriminated against um, and unsafe because of a name written in chalk on the sidewalk. I don't think you guys are getting this. A name in chalk on a sidewalk. Now, I don't want to comment on this particular candidate. That's not why I'm up here. But just the absurdity that our grumbling and our complaining comes to. It was a name. It was chalk. You might get a little bit of it on your shoe as you walk to class, right? It's ridiculous. Now, as I stand up here, grumbling and complaining about grumblers and complainers. (laughs) The irony is is certainly not lost on me. So last summer, um, our air conditioner conditioner went out for about 24 hours in the middle of the summer. Um, And you would have thought from the grumbling and complaining that I did that our house had burnt down. I kid you not, I was on Zillow. I was looking for new houses. I was telling my wife, what are we doing? We can't live here. I cannot live in a house where the air conditioner is not reliable. So 
so we're all grumblers, and I am probably the chief grumbler of the whole church, so please don't feel like I'm throwing stones. But it is something that we all have ingrained in us. And, and also, we know that this is not new. This grumbling, crooked, and twisted generation is not new to us in our generation. The, the, the funny thing is, is that I, I am talking about our crooked and twisted and grumbling generation by quoting Paul from 2,000 years ago, who is talking about his grumbling and crooked and twisted generation. Paul actually in this text is quoting Moses from Deuteronomy 32.5 from about 2,000 years before him, who was talking about the Israelites who grumbled and complained, and Moses called them a crooked and twisted generation. So this is not new. From Genesis 3, from the fall of man on, until the day Christ comes again, there's going to be grumbling, there's going to be complaining, there's going to be some crooked and twisted generations, right? So I think we, we certainly should be mourned by that, but let's not be surprised by that. Let's not be surprised by our generation any longer. And so our sin, what it does is it, it tells us that we are entitled to, to everyone, that everyone should bow to our will. So our sin kind of causes us to fold in on ourselves and that everyone should bow to our will, right? And so when people don't bow to our will because they're thinking the same thing about themselves, we tend to grumble, we tend to complain. And so uh, when Paul is telling us to not grumble and complain, I think he gives, there's two reasons. Uh, One of the reasons is, and we'll find later in Philippians, just within the Philippian church itself, there's been uh, some grumbling, complaining, and some split in the leadership. So that's certainly one of the reasons. I think the second reason is very practical. If we are as Christ Church, to go about our lives without grumbling and complaining, very practically, we're going to be set apart. You're going to be able to tell the difference between Christ Church and the rest of the world, right? He's, so he's telling us that when we do that, we're going to show the world that our hope is not in ourselves, but it's in something else. And then we get to show that something else, which is Jesus, the gospel of life, to the world. That we get, and so Paul is using this metaphor of lights, right? Lights in the darkness, uh, lights amongst a crooked and twisted generation. He's showing that us as the church of Jesus Christ, the body of Christ, we are actually the main thing through which Jesus is, is showing himself to the world through. And so this also is not a new theme in the Bible. In fact, uh, this is something that we see all the way through. God told Abraham in Genesis 12 that he would bless the whole world through a people that he set up through Abraham, through God's people. Jesus in Matthew 5 uh, calls his followers, which include you and me today, as the salt and the light of the earth. God's entire redemptive plan includes blessing the entire world through his people. By working in us, his followers, he displays himself to the world. We are his beacon in the darkness. And so as we start to see this eternal story unfold, I think we start to see the importance in which each of us individually needs to work out our salvation with fear and trembling so that we can be a light in the darkness. And notice too, verse 16, what we are to be a light of. Holding fast to the word of life. We're called, very simply, to be a light of the gospel. We're not called to be a light of a moral code, or a religious denomination, or a social cause, or anything like that. Even though more, some of those things can be very good, we're very simply called to be a light of the gospel. Now, I have bad news, and I have good news for us. 
The bad news is that as we look at what Paul calls us to do in grumbling and complaining, we we realize very quickly that we're not going to measure up. If you try to make it an hour without grumbling or complaining, you should pat yourself on the back. I am grumbling and complaining in a sermon about grumbling and complaining. Like, we're not going to make it. I've tried. We're going to fall short. We're going to be very dimly lit lights sometimes. The fruit of obedience on our trees is going to be shamefully small. Or maybe you've been sitting there and you've been thinking to yourself, boy, I don't know if I've ever seen fruit in my life, fruit of obedience to Jesus in my life. And maybe you're sitting there and just questioning the very roots that you're planted with. And I would say if that's you, if either one of those are you, it's okay. It's okay. We don't have to be perfect before coming to Jesus He wants us just as we are. And this is the beauty of the gospel of Jesus. He is the only one that lived out verse 14 perfectly. He is the only one that walked through this world without grumbling or complaining. He spent 40 days in the desert with Satan being tempted. He never grumbled. He never complained. He was challenged everywhere he went by the religious leaders of his day. He never grumbled. He never complained. One of his closest disciples, Peter, denied him three times on on the very day that he was to be crucified. He never grumbled. He never complained. And then finally, when he was on that cross, he bore our sins that he did not deserve. He bore them for us. Did he grumble? Did he complain? No, he didn't. What did he do? He offered us all forgiveness. Jesus is the one that has walked this earth in a perfect manner. Jesus is the one living in us, fulfilling that so we don't have to. He says, come to me. I want your heart, and I want you right as you are right now, today. And the great thing about it is that when we come to Jesus, he doesn't say that we need to change in our own power. He changes us from the inside out. He gives us a new heart with new desires. You are changed. You are certainly changed by Jesus, but he works it in you, through you, so you're able to work out your salvation with him. City Light, we can do nothing, nothing to earn salvation. It is truly a gift from God. Only one person lived a perfect life. Only one person died for us. Only one person took on the punishment for our sins, and that was Jesus, so that If we believe in him and follow him, we would not perish, but we would have eternal life. But we are not passive recipients of this salvation. We are active participants in it today. Jesus changes our will and our work, our desires and our behavior, so that we might stand out being lights in the darkness, that the world might see his love and his grace manifested through us. For it is God who works in us to will and to work for his good pleasure. Let's pray. Jesus, it is just so humbling to think about what you've done, what you did for us, and the fact that you live in us and you work in us. We are not deserving of you. We are not worthy. There is nothing that we can do to achieve getting to you. But Lord, while we were running from you, you rescued us. Not only did you rescue us, you didn't set us out on a path all our own, but you now live in us, working in us, working through us for salvation from sin yesterday, today, and tomorrow. In Jesus' name, amen.